Hi there, it's Melvin. Just wanted to take a moment to thank the team over at Thryzer for supporting this month's podcast sessions. Thryzer is a payment platform that you have to check out if you are a private pay therapist and accepting out-of-network benefits. It basically helps clients save on therapy up front. Thryzer can help verify a client's out-of-network benefit ahead of the first session so that they get transparency up front on what their out-of-pocket costs will be. I'll tell you more about Thryzer here in the middle of our session, but if you go to sellingthecouch.com forward slash Thryzer, you actually and then enter the code STC upon sign up, you get your first $2,500 in fees waived. Again, that's over at sellingthecouch.com forward slash Thryzer, and be sure to enter the promo code STC. So we'll jump right into today's podcast session. Hello, hello. Welcome to session 194 of Selling the Couch. Hope you're having an awesome start to your day. We are surviving and enjoying spring weather I am continuing to navigate the world of being a business owner and being a parent. A baby girl is now getting over her second illness, which was uh, just a cold. Uh, the first illness was quite brutal. Like I think she had a 104 fever and a trip to urgent care and all of that stuff. But thankfully, we're all doing much better. And it's amazing how parenthood changes you as a, as a business owner and uh yeah, I'm very grateful for it because I, I think it's taught me in terms of what's important in life and what to prioritize and all of those different things. I hope you're doing well today. Today's podcast session is, I called it Building a Practice, Treating Self-Harm in Teens. And my guest is Bess Child. Bess is a L-I-C-S-W in Massachusetts, in Northborough, Massachusetts. Today, we're going to talk all about Bess's private practice journey and how she niched down into working with teens and more specifically in terms of working with teens who struggle with self-harm. And we're going to go into some of the mistakes that she made in terms of marketing her practice, building it, growing it, where she focuses her energy in terms of referrals, and then some of the out-of-box methods and, and things that she's done in order to market her services, which I think you'll be a little bit surprised by. Today's podcast is supported by Turning Point HQ. Uh, this is a brand new sponsor on the STC podcast, but David and well, I call him Dave. Dave and I have gotten to know each other over the past two years. He was a previous STC podcast guest. And honestly, Dave is one of the most kind and generous and helpful people that I know. And with sponsors, you guys know I'm, I'm super discretionary in terms of who I share uh, the STC audience with. And Dave, when uh, we talked about sponsorship, he was one of those people. I just I had zero doubt. And so Dave is a financial planner, uh, specifically for therapists. And his whole mission is to transform your relationship with money. I know for many of us, uh, money is something that, and the money stories that we have often been told, it impacts a lot of how we do business. It impacts how we approach things like retirement and investing and all of those things. And Dave understands that, and he comes from just a very heart-centered place to help us build out an investment in a retirement portfolio. 
Dave actually has this really cool guide. Uh, It's absolutely free to download, and it's called The Seven Money Mistakes That Hold Therapists Back. You can find it over at sellingthecouch.com forward slash turning point HQ. And that guide has a lot of the things that, that can hold a lot of therapists back. And actually, if you go through that link as well, you get $200 off any service that Dave provides. So we'll get right to today's podcast session. Here's my conversation with Best Child from NowThatIcanFly.com and TreatSelfHarm.com. Hey, Bess, welcome to Selling the Couch. Thanks, Melvin. I'm so excited to be here. I feel like we've been, well, it's more on my end. (laughs) It took me a really long time to reach out to you, but you're doing just some amazing work in the world. And I, I really am grateful that we get to have this conversation. I am too. I'm really looking forward to it. I think one of the most amazing things that I was just looking at your practice journey and and some of the things that you're doing is, I think one of the things that's most impressed me about what you're doing is you are ultra clear in who you serve and ultra clear in who you don't serve. And so I wanted to ask you right at the onset, how did you decide that you wanted to work with teens? Yeah, that's a really good question. And I think that it was kind of like a journey. I would say that back from like my childhood, I struggled as a teenager myself. So I think that's where the root was. I was just a highly sensitive teenager and, you know, had some anxiety in high school. And I had a pretty horrible therapist myself. And I hope she's not listening to this, but I just, I felt like it wasn't a good fit. And then I found later on in my late teens, a really amazing therapist. And I would say that she really inspired me to become a therapist myself. But then working in the field, I just always felt like I was drawn to teens and in residential treatment when there were small children or teenagers, people didn't want to work with the teenagers and they always just gave them to me and I loved them. So that's kind of my journey. I would say that I just decided that that's what I enjoyed and they related to me and I related back to them. Yeah, it's amazing how I feel like for many of us, how we can use our own personal experiences to find populations and niches that serve us well. Oh, totally. Yeah. And I think that sometimes we look for, we look to become the people that we wish that we had had. And that's what my experience is definitely. So you said, you know, you had those contrasting experiences with the two therapists that you saw. So out of that, those two experiences, what did you get out of it? And and what did you say to yourself in terms of the therapist that you wanted to be? Well, I found that the first therapist was very traditional and she spent a lot of time talking to my mom about what I was talking about in therapy, which made me not want to talk about anything real with her. So I would go to therapy and I'd talk about things like school or whatever was kind of on the surface or the things Mm -hmm. I thought I should talk about. But then when I found my therapist, I was 19 when I found my second therapist who I really connected with. She was just really real and authentic. And it felt like we were having like a a mutual one-to-one conversation, not like a therapist to client conversation. And she was with me. I stayed with her probably for about six years and she just was so instrumental. And I was like, therapists can be real people. That's so weird. (laughs) You know, (laughs) I didn't really understand that. I always saw it on TV. Like, you know, you're supposed to kind of be a robot and know nothing about them. Right. Or like the couch or the blank couch, 
right? Like you're just kind of sitting and talking. Exactly, exactly. We were like not looking. You're laying down and not looking at them. <laughs> it's so funny you said use the word real and authentic because I wrote down the word real before you said it. Mm-hmm. And uh, it's true. Like I feel like, you know, just sort of a, a slight tangent, but, you know, we learn all these like theories and all these different things, but I do feel like it is that that human connection that really does make a lot of progress in therapy. Absolutely. I feel like even with teens, right, there are so many paths and so many nuances to working with teens. How did you focus on self-harm? Yeah, that was an interesting journey also. I never struggled personally with self-harm, although I did have this period of time in college where I, when I was in like an emotionally stressful time, I would go get a piercing or like a tattoo or something like that, where I noticed that I felt calm afterwards. So I did have some personal experience with like the endorphin release of pain. So I kind of could relate once it came up in my practice in that way. I wasn't using it as like a habitual unhealthy coping skill personally, but I found myself in my second job after grad school working for an agency where dialectical behavior therapy was a primary evidence-based practice they used. I was fortunate enough to, they paid for me to be intensively trained. I also worked under one of the most renowned therapists who trains everyone in Massachusetts pretty much on DBT. And she has like one of those certified programs where you can do the Linehan certification. Jen Eaton, she was a fabulous supervisor and teacher. She also gave me the opportunity to train. So obviously with doing DBT, you see self-harm come up. Another thing that was kind of cool that happened that I was really fortunate was that I was one of the only social workers at the agency for some reason. I think it was the the part of the state I'm in. Boston has more social workers because there are more social work schools, but Central Mass has more like LMHC masters in counseling programs. So I was fortunate enough to be able to be supervised by our executive director, whose name is Barry Walsh. And he is he's a published expert in self-injury and, and suicide. So he goes, travels all over the world to talk about these issues. So I kind of was like a little bit of a fan going into being (laughs) supervised by him, which was really cool. And I stayed in contact with him. He's, he's just a very incredible mentor and role model for how to speak about self-harm, how to kind of what perceptions to have about self-harm, how to notice our assumptions. He's very non-judgmental. That was one thing that I learned from him. So that's the long answer of how I got into treating self-injury. I just felt like it was something that I was drawn to based on my mentors. And not to be super long-winded about this, but one other thing was that I was once I started private practice, I started to kind of treat more general issues and I found myself to be kind of bored. And I felt like I wasn't as good at it, to be honest. So like treating general like anxiety or depression really wasn't fulfilling me as a therapist as much as treating the more intensive issues like suicidal ideation and self-harm. Was it, again, I don't mean to like make this personal, but like, so up until this time, you had all the structure, right? You had a supervisor, you had uh, amazing mentors. It sounds like you were sort of in the confines of an agency, but as you went into private practice, right? You're kind of flying solo Mm -hmm. and focusing on self-harm. Like, was that, was that hard? Like, it's almost like you're the starting point and the ending point in terms of if crisis comes up, like stuff like that, you know? 
Yeah. So I dipped my toe into private practice while I was still at that agency. I actually joined a group practice and the group practice was headed by someone who was trained in DBT as well. We also had a consultation team there with Jen Eaton, who was my supervisor before. So it was kind of like a a nice, smooth transition. And then I started in individual, like my one, my solo private practice. And I think at first I thought, because I was given the message along the way in grad school and mostly in grad school, (laughs) to be honest, that I should fear any risk in private practice. Also, I felt like colleagues kind of passed that feeling along to me. And then I started to just question that. And I have some really incredible colleagues that I use. I actually met people through some of, I want to say it was on Selling the Couch Group or Abundance. Um, We connected and developed a consultation team. So consultation has been still a constant, even in from solo. And now I'm building a group practice. That's awesome how you bridged the past experiences into the the present. Yeah, it was definitely a slow transition. I think, I mean, it was actually pretty quick. If I think about it, it's only been the last two years that I've really transitioned into this position I'm in now. But I do think that the, I took the steps and it was kind of like gradual. It wasn't like I just leapt into treating, being a specialist in self-harm in my private practice by myself. I mean, I'm so glad you said that because I feel like, especially, I mean, we were talking about this right before we started recording, even like, especially in this online space, a lot of times, I mean, I know that I've been guilty of this where I share the end result and I don't share the steps that got me there. Absolutely. And I know like, I know that colleagues have reached out and said, you know, not that, and you know how to best put it, but like, it's kind of made them insecure or doubt themselves because they're only seeing the end result, right? And one of the things I've tried to do is just be more intentional about this is where I'm at right now. This is what I'm struggling with. And I feel like, you know, something like that is just helpful. Yeah, it's definitely a journey and it's not linear by any means. (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. What was a mistake that you made in your private practice initially as you got started? I think that initially I, well, first of all, I got an insurance panels, which I think that was something that I, I felt like I needed to do because I did have a little bit of insecurity going into private practice. Like, you know, I'm not going to be able to get any clients. And I think that one of the things that I and clearly I'm not doing this now, but I did was I just took whoever called. Like at one point I remember I was seeing like somebody who was under the age of 12, which was not my specialty at all. I literally sat with them and was like, I don't know what to talk to you about (laughs) because I, I just don't, I did my first year internship in a school with young kids, but I really didn't, I didn't, I wasn't drawn to working with young children. So I think that a mistake was thinking that I needed to take whoever called me because I was so concerned that I wasn't going to be full. I think also trying to be more of a generalist in the beginning and saying like, oh yeah, I can treat all of these different things that I'm not really into treating. Like it doesn't fulfill me. So those are the things that I think 
probably taking insurance, which sounds kind of awful because I think that it's great when some people are able to take insurance. I, I enjoy that. You know, I appreciate that other people are able to do that, but for me, it just kept me in a box. So I wasn't able to offer like the wide variety of things that I want to be able to in my practice. Right. It restricted you in terms of like what you could offer. And it even sounds like mentally, like it was almost a block. Yes, definitely. No, I'm I'm so glad you said both of those points. I feel like to that second point about being a generalist, I don't know what it's like for you, but like for me, I almost felt like I had to like go through that thing of, you know, like whether it was, I think for me, it was like insecurity based, like, like you said, where you almost have to be a generalist and then you figure out what you're good at, what you're passionate about, and then you kind of niche down. Absolutely. I think that in, again, not to keep knocking grad school, but I feel like I had to undo a lot of things that I learned in grad school. I just kept, I remember being told over and over again that you need to be eclectic, an eclectic therapist when you're, you you go into private practice or when you are in an agency even. But I would say, and it's funny, I always give her a shout out and everything I do. But I would say that my the the tipping point for me was starting to work with Katie May because she just it's like she's so authentically herself in her work that I was like, oh, I get to do that too. And I think it's when I when I got permission or gave myself permission or she gave me permission to just be who I am in my work that I was like, oh, I also get to say I don't want to work with or I don't do as well working with certain other populations. So I really niche down after I felt the permission to be myself, which I don't think that there is a lot of encouragement of that in grad school. Yeah, no, absolutely. By the way, shout out to Katie. Shout out to Katie always. <laughs> no, I, I agree with you because I, I mean, I even think about like my own journey, even this was undergrad. Like I had a professor that I really just thought highly of, like really loved. And they, you know, basically told me not to even go into the profession <laughs> mm-hmm. because, you know, there was, it was just not like a financially viable thing. And it is interesting. The not, I can't imagine most people are just like, they're doing this intentionally. It sounds like it's a lot of fear, right? But the messages that we get, you know, and how we do have to undo some of this as we become business owners. Yeah, definitely. So you decided to focus on self-harm in teens. And so just kind of fast forwarding to the present, like in terms of referrals and where you focus your energy in terms of referrals, where do those tend to be for you? Yeah. Um, I was thinking about this when we went into our conversation. I, I do a lot of different things mm-hmm. and I would say that this I don't want this to sound arrogant, but I feel like being good at what I do is my primary source of marketing. (laughs) And so that I think is, you know, when you are really good at your specific thing and you're really helping people, other people are going to hear about it. So I think that that's one thing that has happened is that I, you know, have done work with one person and then they tell other people. So a lot of word of mouth, I would say. I get a lot of people calling me say, oh, you know, my, you know, my niece is, did really well in your practice and I really want to refer this other person I know to you. I also do a lot of networking with the school systems in the area. I've done some trainings in the schools. I just finished 
a DBT training with an entire counseling staff at a local charter school. So that's one way where, you know, just being able to go in and I've done a couple of like just free talks with counseling departments where I, I'll go in and just talk to them about what I'm offering and the issues of self-harm and what treatments we recommend. I do also use Facebook ads. I find that they are such a great way to just get some exposure. Even if people aren't just clicking and calling you right from the ad, at least you're kind of like getting your name more familiar to the general population in the area. I also have, I do a lot of networking with, you know, like pediatricians and the local partial hospitalization programs and local inpatient. And we also have like McLean Hospital is relatively close to us, which is really well known for its DBT. So I'm a referral source for them. So lots of different things. I just try to kind of throw everything out there and hope that people will will reach out. So it's been pretty successful so far. Yeah. You said a lot of like really good things. <laughs> I want to like <laughs> tease those out. So first of all, I don't think you're being at all arrogant in terms of saying like that you're good at what you do, because I mean, I've heard this over and over on, on this podcast, which is, you know, sometimes the best marketing is just doing good work. Yeah, right? absolutely. And I think part of that is just having the confidence to know, like you said earlier, this is what I'm good at and this is where my weaknesses are. And it's okay. I feel like for many of us, because I think we are, we're almost, I don't know if we're like scared to come across as arrogant, maybe. <laughs> if for many of us, I know, like, I know for me, I struggle with this, which is to own that we're good at something and that we've accomplished something, you know? I think that our society definitely puts that on us. And I hear that from my, you know, I learned so much from the teens I work with. They say that like, you know, their self-esteem is low because they feel like that's what they've been taught to kind of put out there. Um, and I always bring up the scene from Mean Girls. I don't know if you've seen that movie. <laughs> I have not. <laughs> so. Oh, well, you need because there are lots of good clips there that you can use in therapy. But there's this one scene where the girls are, you know, the mean girls are all looking in the mirror and they're sit talking about all the things that they hate about themselves. And then they look to Lindsay Lohan, who's playing this girl who's just moved from Africa. And she's like, I have really bad breath in the morning sometimes. Like she's not sure how to talk badly about herself because she hasn't been kind of socialized to do that. Huh. It's really interesting because I think we do have that mentality where it's like, talking nicely about yourself is not always encouraged. That's very interesting. The second point you said was, so a lot of this is very intentional relationship building, right? And I think what you're saying is you think about who are the other people that are serving teens and teens who might struggle with self-harm. Is that right? Yes, definitely. And then you kind of go and you try to think about ways that you can serve those people and be a resource for those people. Exactly. Because a lot of people don't want to be treating self-harm. So you can also be a service on top of regular outpatient therapy too, which I've found is helpful. So I can do kind of like a additional add-on treatment specific to self-harm or if they want to do group with me. So definitely. That's cool. And I think you said this without saying it, but it's not like this network started out from day one. In fact, you built this kind of layer upon layer mm -hmm. and you're very strategic in terms of a strategic meeting, like strategic, intentional, thoughtful about 
who you're building these relationships with. You're not trying to like, just trying to go all crazy like day, day one and, you know, like it, it, it's taking time. Yeah. I'm not sending like gift baskets to people. I'm like really trying to just get at what the needs are in the area for sure. Bess, I wanted to wrap up with a question and you mentioned it right at the end, which is, so my question was, would you mind just sharing with us like any sort of out of the box methods of getting clients and, or, you know, being sort of a, an expert in this area. And you said Facebook ads. So it sounds like there's some local targeting with Facebook ads. Yeah. I, so I have two parts of Facebook that I utilize. One is that I will do local targeting of Facebook ads to local parents. I've also targeted local therapists too, who might have clients who need DBT group or they need like an additional add-on therapy. But then the other part of my business is that I've established a specialization. I always am like so weird about the term expert, but I guess that's where we'll go with that expert expertise. You're an expert. (laughs) In treating self-harm and then also training other therapists how to treat self-harm. And I think that I do have, I mean, I have some traditional approaches that I use, but I also have some kind of unorthodox approaches that you would maybe, you have to think a little bit outside the box. So I do have a Facebook group. It's called Treat (laughs) Self-Harm. And I also have an online course So I try to train other therapists to utilize the methods that I've kind of honed, learned. I can't take credit for like the origination of a lot of the things that I've learned because some of them are from DBT, but some of them are just from my experience. Mm. And so I've found that also there are lots of people who are in my group who are in this area. And so they can refer to me based off of my expertise in treating self-harm. So that's been kind of cool because I think I've established myself as an expert in this topic rather than just the treatment of DBT. That is cool. That's a very subtle like way to distinguish it. You're not known necessarily for the training, but what you do as a result of that training. Yeah, I think that that's a mistake that I see a lot of therapists making is like, and I think that there are wonderful treatments out there that people will market, but a lot of general population folks aren't going to know what EMDR or DBT or CBT is when they first come to you. It's generally not known in our field, obviously, but I think that the issue that we treat is more important when marketing. So I would say that the outside of the box methods have been kind of just making sure that I'm marketing to an issue rather than just saying like talking about feelings or talking about general therapy. Right. Or that you're DBT certified, although that might be helpful, but generally you're not leading with that. Right. You're saying I help, you know, um, your daughter's self-harming behaviors. Exactly. Exactly. Bess, I'm so grateful for you. I'm so grateful that we have been able to connect. Where can we learn more about you and some of the awesome stuff you're doing in the world? So I have two websites. My practice website is nowthatiCanfly.com and that's lo- we're located in Northborough, Mass. And I also have a website for therapists who want to improve their skills to treat self-harm and that's at www.treatselfharm.com. And you can also join our Facebook group, which is, you can locate a link on that 
website as well. And I thank you so much, Melvin. This has been wonderful. I appreciate you so much. No, you're so welcome. And I'll definitely put that on the show notes page. Thanks again for doing this. Awesome. Thank you. Have a great rest of your day. You too. Hey there. Hope you enjoyed my conversation with Bess. And again, Bess's website, if you do want to learn more about treating self-harm, is it's very easy to remember. It's treatselfharm.com. And be sure to join her Facebook group as well if this is an area that you're really interested in developing and, and wanting to learn more skills on. And again, her private practice website is nowthaticanfly.com, which is just such a cool name. As I was reflecting on this session, so I, I you know, f- for a lot of my clinical training, I worked at counseling centers and I, I worked with teens. And so I, I do have a passion for this population as well. And I was thinking about just this conversation and some of the things that I was taking away. And I think one of the most important lessons that that I took away from this is to own what we are good at and to let go and just have the humility to say, you know what, this is not my area of strength. Because for at least for me, and again, this is for me, this is such a work in progress, because there's this part of me that always fights and like I struggle with sometimes with competence and not feeling competent. And so the thought of saying that, you know, this is not an area that that I have expertise, and that's still sometimes hard for me. But what I've realized is when I can let go of that, that gives me more time and energy to focus on the things that I'm good at. So whether that's getting additional training, reading books, those kind of things. And so I hope uh, that perspective is a, is a little bit different kind of gives you some encouragement, especially if you're in a season where you're struggling to to know that you know that you're good at one thing, but you're struggling with this other element of, I don't want to be seen as not competent. The other thing that I took away is just being thoughtful and intentional about where to focus her marketing. And so Bess really thinks, first of all, she thinks and she gets trainings and she just does good work. She has consultations. And so the focus really is on good work. And then she also then expands to other things, right? So she thinks about where are those people that may need the services that I provide? Who are the other colleagues who have ex, who work with teens who may struggle with self-harm. And so she's very thoughtful in terms of serving them. Show notes to today's episode can be found over at sellingthecouch.com forward slash session and the number 194. Before we wrap up, just wanted to take a moment to thank the team over at Turning Point HQ for supporting today's podcast session. So Turning Point HQ is the result or is the brainchild of David Frank, who is a financial planner for therapists. And as I've mentioned before, uh, Dave and I actually have gotten to be good friends, just an awesome person to work with. And one of the things that Dave will help us to do is create a holistic and an intentional retirement and investing plan that supports you to lead a really awesome life. Because ultimately, I think for many of us, it's we invest, right, to create the life that we want, and uh, it's to do it in an intentional way. And Dave, honestly, is just one of the most like heart-centered folks that I've ever met, and you're absolutely going to be in good hands with him. You can learn more about Turning Point HQ and the awesome services that they provide over at sellingthecouch.com forward slash turning point HQ. And if you go through that link, uh, Dave actually created this seven financial mistakes that therapists make. It's a free downloadable. 
and uh, you can download it right there. And then you also get $200 off any of your, any of the services that Dave provides. Be sure to mention that you heard it on STC. Have a great rest of your day and I'll see you next time. Bye. Thanks for listening to the Selling the Couch podcast. For more great content and to stay up to date, visit www.sellingthecouch.com. So if you've been listening to the STC podcast for a while or you've been listening to podcasts and you've had this thought of, Mel, I would love to launch my own podcast in order to grow my business, just wanted to encourage you to check out our free podcasting workshop, which is over at sellingthecouch.com forward slash podcasting workshop. You can basically sign up at a day and a time that works for you. It's 90 minutes. And when I do these workshops or when I record them, I truly believe in the quality teaching, so it's going to be well worth your time. We're going to go through gear recommendations and how to launch strategically and how to think about monetizing your podcast and how to line up your podcast with your existing offers and how to do it strategically and authentically uh, and not salesy and slimy um, and all of those things. So again, the link is over at sellingthecouch.com forward slash podcasting workshop.